Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Anna Merlin will talk about her new book on conspiracy theories. The thing that makes the U.S. so particularly prone to them is a couple things. First of all, we have a really vibrant free press. We also have an extremely opaque financial system, healthcare system, a system of government that a lot of people do not feel represented by, and all those things together leads pretty directly to conspiracy theories. Today, conspiracy theories flourish like measles in a Marin County Montessori. How did the extreme become so mainstream? Our next guest went above and beyond the call of duty, spending years of her life talking to conspiracy theorists from coast to coast while researching her new book, Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. Anna Merlin, reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, joins us today. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Thanks for having me. So I was really impressed by how in-depth you went in your reporting for this book. You went on a cruise with conspiracy theorists. You attended conferences. What was that like spending so much intimate time with people who believe fringe things? So the cruise was actually how I started thinking about writing the book. The cruise was for Jezebel, the feminist website that's part of Gizmodo Media Group. And the cruise was in January of 2016. And so while I was there, I noticed that a lot of the folks on the cruise were really excited about Donald Trump and really saw him as like a truth teller who spoke to a lot of their beliefs about how things worked. And I thought it's so interesting the way that he's like reviving all of these different groups and sort of bringing them closer to the mainstream. He's a real unifier. Yeah, he's a real unifier. (laughs) And so what's going to happen when he loses? And then he didn't. (laughs) And so in some ways... The process of researching writing this book was a process of trying to understand how America actually works and how it actually thinks and the ways that conspiracy theories impact us and have historically for so many years. Because as it turns out, I don't understand this country as well as I thought I did. And when you would go into gatherings of people who believe conspiracy theorists, would you tell them what you were there for? Was there distrust of you as a member of the MSM? Yes and yes. Um, I always announce who I am. You know, I don't sneak into anything. And yeah, there was a lot of um, everything from I was a possible CIA agent to a couple people you, on the are cruise. Are you a CIA agent? I don't think they would have me. <laughs> okay. Um, to just, you know, you're here to make us look stupid. You're here to make fun of us. To you must be a paid shill for Big Pharma. So there's a, there's a range. Generally, though, you know, people have, like, enormous generosity where even if they thought that I was a paid big pharma CIA shill, they were still willing to talk to me and talk about what their beliefs were and welcome me into their spaces. Like it was pretty rare that I had overt hostility, which in a lot of ways is like speaks well of people. Were you surprised over time? Like is there, as somebody who doesn't engage that frequently with conspiracy theorists, um, are there things that, assumptions that I might make that you uh, have a different opinion on? Yeah, I mean, the fact that you don't think you engage with conspiracy theorists, you do, because statistically, most people in America, about 50% of us or one in three believe in at least one conspiracy theory. And so the kinds of conspiracy theories that you believe in are pretty mediated by your cultural and economic and social and educational background. So if you don't have to engage with conspiracy theories a lot of the time, it's probably because you are somebody for whom 
uh, America has like worked pretty well and you haven't really needed to engage in conspiracy thinking. That's that. Well, that's often the case. Not always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the most commonly believed conspiracy theories? Well, the most common sort of benign one is that the government is not telling us everything they know about aliens or alien visitation or alien technology. The sense that the JFK assassination has been covered up in some way or the government is not telling us everything they know about that is a very common one. On the right, um, the idea that at some point our guns are going to get taken away is relatively common um, among Trump voters. The completely false notion that Barack Obama was born in Kenya still has a lot of traction, a lot more than perhaps it should, you know, seven years after he had a or eight years now after he had a press conference to produce his long-form birth certificate. So there are a lot. You mentioned this connection between disenfranchisement and a belief in conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that, and maybe let's talk about it in context of the African-American community. Yeah, so there are a bunch of studies that essentially show that people who are disenfranchised or disadvantaged are slightly more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. And we see that especially with black Americans. And so I have a chapter in my book that is about conspiracy theories in black America, which are real specific. They are ones that we don't see often in other sections of the population and are very like rooted in actual historical events that happened to black people over the course of American history. So a lot of conspiracy theories in black America are fundamentally about uh, distrust of the medical establishment because there has have been so many actual medical conspiracy theories perpetrated against black people and about sort of generally a sense that the government is not fully trustworthy and is not really taking care of you, which is, again, for a lot of black families, an incredibly sympathetic and historically very true thing. The, the one that I started out talking about is this belief um, among a lot of people in New Orleans that the levees during Katrina were deliberately blown up. And what I explained was, while we don't have a lot of proof that that is the case, um, we do know that during the 1927 Mississippi flood, levees uh, south of New Orleans were in fact deliberately blown up to save the city, was the theory. But you know what ended up happening was uh, that decision to dynamite the levees flooded these uh, low-lying areas, left a lot of people homeless, killed a number of people, we still don't know how many, and triggered one of the greatest mass migrations in American history. So the fact that this idea that maybe the levees were blown up in Katrina recurred is really evidence of this like very like deep historical trauma. Right. Fool me once, shame on you. Mm -hmm. Ashley and Cotty wrote in GQ a couple days ago about the death of Nipsey Hussle mm -hmm. and about how there have been a lot of conspiracy theories about the way that he was killed. Yeah. Um, and she wrote, the black community in particular has been on the receiving end of real and outrageously pernicious endeavors by the state and community pillars have been targeted by the government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking about the Tuskegee experiment. We're talking about forced sterilization. Yes. We're talking about systematic targeting yeah. of uh, civil rights movement leaders. Mm -hmm. So all of it, all of it sounds crazy until it's not crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, the Nipsey Hussle conspiracy theories are based on the idea that he was working on a documentary about a figure named Dr. Sebi, who essentially claimed to have a natural cure for cancer. Um, so that's like the overlap of two things. The idea that the government suppressed or... I believe it's AIDS. Maybe it's AIDS and cancer. Yeah. It, no, I, I, no, I think you're right. It was AIDS. Um, so, yeah. 
it's like the idea that the government is suppressing cures for serious diseases and the idea that, you know, the government would kill to keep those secrets is, uh, yeah, a pretty deep rooted one. You know, we know, for instance, that like the FBI was conspiring against Martin Luther King and encouraging him to commit suicide. You know, like there are real and completely outrageous examples of government conspiracies that we can draw on. Right. And I think that is what makes a lot of the government based conspiracies somewhat believable. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that in the past, our government has done terrible things to people and tried to cover it up. So it's totally plausible that this might be happening currently. Yeah. And suspicion of the government isn't new. What we know is that before World War One, most conspiracy theories were focused on like outside groups like Masons, communists, Jews, and then as the federal government grew larger after World War One, there were more and more conspiracy theories about it. So like at its base, at its core, what we're doing really is like expressing a distrust of authority that is like reasonable and sympathetic and part of the fabric of America for a really long time. Right. And I guess that's what sets apart conspiracies from conspiracy theories. Yeah. And how did people respond when you would call something a conspiracy theory? I mean, it's considered very offensive. Obviously, you know, people who are we're we're all in the pool statistically as Americans, but people who are in the deep end of the pool uh, told me many times that they prefer to be referred to as members of the truth community or the research community. So, yeah, um, that's a lot great of branding. Sure. I yeah. Feel like I'm a member of the truth community. I feel like we're all members of the truth <laughs> right. community. I don't know. I mean, I guess we work in uh, journalism. Right. So maybe exactly. Not. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would just tell me, you know, how can you possibly trust the government? How can you possibly trust the CDC? Are you really that gullible? And you sort of get to a point where you're like, I understand the point that you're making and it's hard to argue against on its merits. What do you respond when somebody says, how can you possibly trust the government? I mean, I had this conversation yesterday with an anti-vaccine activist who I was interviewing for something. And what I say is that I don't trust every government agency equally. I don't take anything that they tell me at face value. But when it comes to, for instance, the issue of vaccines, I trust the thousands of medical experts and medical bodies who have done studies that determine that they're safe. I would say that, like, we are not required to trust anybody, but I do think we can trust objective facts and science and, like, objective reality at some point. But everybody's definition of that is different, so maybe it's not an answerable question. Let's talk a little bit about vaccines. Very topical right now. Um, In certain parts of Williamsburg, uh, New York City has said that it's mandatory vaccinations because of measles outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Anti-vaccination is always one of those interesting nodes to me where it's like an Ouroboros where the far right and the far left are like in a sandbox. Totally. Um, yeah. Why is that? Why does this specific uh, arena appeal to people on both sides of the political spectrum who probably voted for different people? Yeah, it taps into distrust of the government, which has adherence on the left and the right, and also concepts about natural health and like natural immunity that are popular on the left and that we're just like seeing more and more of like we're having a resurgence of for instance like fake cancer cures like natural cancer cures that were first popular in the 70s um so yeah anti-vaccine is one of those areas where everybody can kind of find a way into it even if it's just I don't think the government has the right to tell me what to do with my body. There's there's a lot of ways into that one. It's a big unvaccinated tent. Yep, it sure is. <laughs> um, so this book is largely about the U.S. Mm-hmm. 
Are, are we here in the U.S. more susceptible to conspiracy theories? Is this mm. a uniquely American proposition? It's definitely not uniquely American. We know that conspiracy theories tend to thrive a lot of times in repressive countries or in countries with uh, authoritarian regimes. I think that the thing that makes the U.S. so particularly prone to them is a couple things. First of all, we have a really vibrant free press, which is great. Obviously, we would both agree on that. We have a lot of mechanisms to express ourselves. We have a lot of technology. We also have an extremely opaque financial system, healthcare system, a system of government that a lot of people do not feel represented by. And all of those things together contribute to a sense of anger, a sense of powerlessness, a sense of disenfranchisement that leads pretty directly to conspiracy theories. So we see stuff that you would not expect to see in a nominally democratic country. What are Lee Hop and Me Hop? Mm -hmm. And how are they sort of emblematic of a particular school of conspiracy thinking? So you're talking about the two main strains of 9-11 conspiracy theories, which is let it happen on purpose and made it happen on purpose. Let it happen on purpose is essentially the idea that the Bush administration knew about the 9-11 attacks that they were being planned and let them happen anyway as a pretext to go to war for oil and made it happen on purpose as the idea that the Bush administration was directly involved in the planning and execution of the 9-11 attacks. Um, so this is really interesting because these are, these are the kinds of conspiracy theories that occur like throughout history, either that something happened through like active cruelty and malice and, you know, murderous intent, or it just happened through greed and laziness and incompetence, you know, we see it over and over again. But the reason why that stuff flourished so much for 9-11 is, first of all, because it was a huge event. It was, you know, one of the biggest events in our nation's history. And it happened right at the time when YouTube and Blogger and all these other platforms um, were just becoming popular. So all of a sudden, people could express these theories and find each other and fuse into these communities. And we call this type of thinking uh, a false flag, right? Would you, or would you consider that a false flag? I think that the, the made it happen on purpose people are saying that 9-11 was a false flag, yeah. And tell me what you mean when you say false flag. Uh, when people talk about a false flag, they mean an attack that was perpetrated usually by a government and blamed on a foreign adversary as a pretext in order to go to war or achieve some other political uh, aim. And there are real examples of false flags, right? Mm -hmm. So Yeah. The Reichstag fire is an example of one um, in Nazi Germany as a way to consolidate power. There are examples of false flag proposals in American history that didn't happen that are very controversial and have a long echo. Operation Northwoods is one, which was essentially a proposal to commit terrorist acts against American citizens and blame them on Cuba to justify going to war with Cuba. And so President Kennedy found out about that proposal and vetoed it. But a lot of folks will tell you that it actually happened. You know, a lot of people in the truth community will say that it actually happened and will use it as an example of like just how far the government is willing to go. So the made it happen on purpose, sirs, mm -hmm. posit that 9-11 was something that the government, that the U.S. government um, committed against its own people as an excuse to go to war. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, do facts help? You mentioned that Popular Mechanics released a whole issue and then a book yeah. aiming to debunk some of the pseudoscience that the me hoppers were putting out there. Mm -hmm. Does that help at all? No. 
is is there anything that can be done? I mean, I feel like I'm a glutton for punishment. Like mm-hmm. um, I wrote a piece about like going on a date with a Trump supporter because I'm like, if we can just connect as individuals and see what we have in common and I can use logical reasoning, sure. then maybe I can change minds. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's cute. That's a good that's, that's a good a nice thought. thought. Sure. You're more optimistic than I am. Um I would say that one thing that we know is that the internet especially is such a self-reinforcing ecosystem that anything that you have a strong motivation to believe because of your political orientation, your social orientation, you're you're going to find a reason to believe it. Our beliefs are very very hardwired. So what we know is that if somebody is a recent convert to a conspiracy theory, it's usually easier to talk them out of it. But like a lot of beliefs that are really entrenched, they take on like the quality of religious faith. They're mm-hmm. they're in there. And one of my favorite twists with the whole false flag chapter of your book is mm-hmm. that some people think that Alex Jones, who himself is a false flag theorist, mm-hmm. that he's a false flag. Yes. Which is it also tells you just how meaningless the word false flag has become that these people call everything a false flag. Yeah, the idea is essentially I've seen some very fringe conspiracy types positing that Alex Jones is a plant, a false flag, you know, some form of disinformation agent put in place to make conspiracy theorists look bad. So (laughs) we've been talking a lot about the role of the Internet and social media in Mm -hmm. breeding conspiracy theories. Um, Talk to me a little bit about Russian interference in the election. They peddled all of these different conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and they were able to target them to specific communities. Yeah, I mean, we know that there was disinformation coming out of elements of the Russian government for a really long time. I talk about in my book, after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, there were, you know, armies of trolls and bots spreading misinformation about the oil spill. So like this is this is a longstanding thing, this idea of misinformation. What we know happened during the election is that these same sort of bot and troll entities were engaged in trying to exploit like pre-existing divisions in America. So for instance, we know that there are a bunch of uh, Facebook pages set up to sort of argue both sides of really heated issues like gun control. We know that there were apparently bot and troll accounts promoting both sides of the vaccine debate. So it's this sort of interesting place where some outside adversary has identified our weakness, the, the, the sensitive soft places in our democracy and is trying to exploit them. And, and it didn't seem like they were pushing one side of the agenda. It was just to sow dissent and discord. D- dissent, discord, division. And there's obviously still a lot of argument about like how well that's working, if it is working. But we know that it's happening. What role, or I guess we know the role, but what responsibility do social media companies have for this increasing fragmentation uh, and mainstreaming of conspiracy theories? Mm-hmm. What would you like to see um, see Jack and Mark take a stand on? I have so many like arguments and debates about this with myself and with other people. So I talked to Lenny Posner, who is a Sandy Hook dad. He lost his youngest son, Noah, at Sandy Hook. And he also is somebody who's increasingly come to believe that like the internet needs to be a lot more regulated. And that's the only way we're going to kind of get out of this. Um, I really have trouble with that just as a sort of basic matter of free speech and free democracy. Uh, I'm also really uneasy about Facebook and Twitter's ability 
to actually regulate and fact check and flag misinformation. Every time they try, they do a really bad job. Um, so, you know, every time we watch Facebook try to roll out some kind of fact checking mechanism, it seems to go really badly. There was an amazing Verge story a little while ago um, about Facebook's content moderators who sit there and sift through hours and hours and hours of misinformation, conspiracy theories, really violent content. And some of the moderators told The Verge reported that they were actually becoming sympathetic to conspiracy theories by watching hours and hours of them. So the short answer is that I don't know. I, I really think that Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies have built these platforms that are so big, they really can't control them. It's a pipeline and it's really hard to guarantee that the pipeline is only delivering clean water and not sewage. That's really interesting about exposure therapy, that the more you're exposed to an idea, uh, I guess it's the Overton window as well, right? That all of a sudden something that seemed fringe doesn't seem so fringe anymore. Did you see this happening to yourself at all? Like, was there a conspiracy theory that you went in thinking, that's crazy, that now you're like, actually? Well, it really depends on who you are as an individual. It really depends on what you're already susceptible to. So for me, no, but I also have an enormous level of privilege. I, like, have been to school for way too long. I am like socially very advantaged. So the idea that some of these conspiracy theories were going to affect me is not super realistic. But I went in believing in aliens and I still believe in aliens. So, you know, like uh, that was uh, that that was uh, something that happened. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> tell me about Pizzagate. Yeah, I guess we have to talk about Pizzagate. Sure. Yeah. So Pizzagate was the conspiracy theory that there was a sex trafficking ring involving high level Democratic Party officials that was operating out of the basement of a pizza parlor. And the reason why most people know about Pizzagate is because eventually a believer in Pizzagate went to the pizza parlor with a gun intending to rescue the children. And very luckily, he did not hurt anybody, but it was really sort of a reminder that stuff leaks off of the internet and into real life. And he found that there was no basement mm -hmm. uh, and therefore no children being held captive in the basement. And mm -hmm. he put down his guns and he turned himself in. He did. Uh, but it, it seems like that was that was lucky. Right. Like, it yeah, come very differently. And even when he was sitting in jail and a New York Times reporter went to see him, he had trouble saying that he had been wrong. He said something. I think he said, you know, the intel on this wasn't 100 percent. And then I went to his sentencing hearing and the judge pointed out that he had never actually really fully admitted that he had been completely wrong. You know, he apologized for any innocent people that he might have scared. But did he actually say, like, I've come to believe that all this is fake? No, because... Again, once something is entrenched, it's really, really, really hard for us to fully change our minds. Right. And the, it's interesting, the, um, the blips that emerge uh, around which conspiracy theorists gather. Mm -hmm. We talked about vaccines being one of them. Jews, obviously a huge one. Yeah. Um, pedophilia is one as well. And yeah. that struck me as surprising until you talked a, a little bit more about mm -hmm. it. Why, why is pedophilia something that conspiracy theories theorists are drawn to? So I pointed out this thing um, that several historians have written about called the nocturnal ritual fantasy a historian whose last name is Cohn and whose first name I'm forgetting has written about this idea that literally since the Middle Ages, there's this conspiracy theory that there are secret groups of evildoers meeting in secret underground at night to have black masses and orgies and solidify their bonds by abusing children. So in some ways, the idea of violence against children as like the most 
sort of sinister element of any conspiracy theory is like really old. It's really deep. I also came to believe that one of the reasons why it kept recurring, you know, I heard I heard it about it from the Pizzagate folks. I heard about it from white supremacists that I interviewed who were convinced that, you know, everybody in the government is a child abuser. I heard about it in the UFO world. I came to believe that all these people were so convinced that their opponents were pedophiles because that is literally the worst thing you can be, right? There is nothing worse than abusing children. And so I think it was a way for people to say, my opponent is so evil, they are so sick that I am justified in doing anything I need to do to take them out of circulation. That's really interesting that it's the ultimate way to dehumanize someone by calling them a pedophile. Yeah, it is. And um, it was one of the only things that somebody said to me in the course of reporting the book that I was truly offended by. And I'm Jewish and I was talking to Nazis. So the fact that there was only one thing that really like offended me and offended my sensibilities should like tell you something. So let's talk a little bit about anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and how so many conspiracy theories can be traced back to roots in anti-Semitic thinking. I guess first tell me a little bit about that. And then I'm curious about your own experience as somebody who identifies as Jewish as well mm-hmm. in talking to people who um, hate Jews. Yeah. Um, so anti-Semitism is a really, really old prejudice and hatred. And it is fundamentally a conspiratorial one because it is the belief that Jews are not just evil or subhuman or other, it's a belief that Jews are working in secret to affect like global control, that Jews are a cabal that control everything from the banking system to the weather, right? Um, And so a lot of times it was interesting to me because I would be talking to white supremacists and they're repeating ideas to me that are literally medieval in nature. You know, the idea of the blood libel, the idea that Jews slaughter children and use their blood in our matzah meal is something, again, that is from the Middle Ages that now recurs. It was like sort of an element uh, for some people in Pizzagate. It's something that gets referred to a lot among like anti-Semitic politicians across the world, especially in Egypt for some reason. My experience with it was interesting because I'm not identifiably Jewish to a lot of these people because they have a really cartoonish idea of what Jews look like. So I could be in these spaces for a while and hear about everybody's, you know, thoughts about the Jews before telling them that I was Jewish, which was super interesting. So at what point did you choose to come out and say to somebody who you knew to be a white supremacist, a Nazi, by the way, I'm Jewish. And how did that change the discourse or did it? So I would say that Again, among the people that I talked to for the book, and this is not true of everybody, there are definitely like groups of people where I would not approach them. I wouldn't go to their gatherings. I would not feel safe. Um, Among the people I talked to for the book, like Matthew Heimbach, who was at the time running this thing called the Traditionalist Workers Party that fell apart because he was having an affair with his father-in-law's wife (laughs) Um, and like a white nationalist radio host. These people really wanted to show me how reasonable they were. So, you know, when I would tell them I was Jewish midway through a conversation, they'd be like, oh, that's fine. You know, we don't hate Jews. We just want you to go back to your own country, which is Israel. So I write about it in the book. But one of my interactions was with this guy uh, who called himself Commander Dylan. Um, and who is part of this group called Vanguard America. And we started talking and I asked him where he was from. And he said, New Mexico. And I said, oh, that's where I'm from, because it is. So we ended up having this conversation that ended with him being like, you know, we just want Jews to go back to where, they're, to where they came from. And I said, well, what about me? I'm from where you're from. I'm not from Israel. 
And, you know, obviously he didn't have an answer, but it's interesting to get them to consider those questions in a more direct way than they might have to. But again, this is something that has a long history. You know, in the early 90s, when there was a big resurgence of white nationalist groups, a lot of times reporters who were non-white would go to talk to these people specifically to see, like, can you handle this? And often they couldn't. So you're from New Mexico? Mm-hmm. Tell me about aliens. So I did not grow up in the alien part of New Mexico, but I still, you know, feel a strong kinship to them, obviously. Um, For me, the idea that the government is not telling us everything that we know about alien visitation or alien technology is reasonable. The idea that we're not alone in the universe is pretty sympathetic to me. So I would say that I believe in aliens in sort of a casual, open-minded, like, sure, why not? kind of way. And so my interactions with the UFO folks were pretty benign compared to some of the other stuff I did. But even in the UFO world, there's all these weird controversies right now about, for instance, whether uh, there are sex slaves on Mars. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned (laughs) this in the intro, right, that it seems to me, and maybe this is like rose-colored glasses looking backwards, that when I was a kid, mm-hmm. conspiracy theories were kind of like goofy and gentle. And that we have, or at least the ones that were um, mainstreamed, right? Well, when were you a kid? In the 90s. In the 90s. So, you know, like this is a relative period of like prosperity and social stability that there was a huge resurgence in neo-Nazi groups. But yeah, I mean, I would say that like, So you mentioned the X-Files. The reason the X-Files was so popular is that we were seeing like an uptick again of like distrust in the government. So, you know, conspiracy theories have not always been super benign, but definitely the less benign ones have more airtime now than Bigfoot. And you talk about how the rise in mainstreaming of conspiracy theories roughly mirrors times of um, political upheaval or social change. Yeah. And we know that because the professors who have done the best work on this actually tracked letters to the editor over the course of like 100 years. What a thankless job. Yeah. No kidding. Right. (laughs) But you track letters to the editor and you see like, oh, when were people getting really upset about Masons and communists? And like, that's a way to kind of see the the rise and fall of conspiracy theories. What do you think about Alex Jones now coming out and saying that some of his conspiracy theories he was wrong about and can be uh, blamed on a medical condition? Yeah, in his deposition, I think he said that some of it was attributable to like a form of psychosis that made him think that things were faked when they're really real. I think that what we're seeing broadly is that Alex Jones is going to say anything to try to get out of these increasingly serious lawsuits. It's been really interesting to watch his depositions because he has always told his audiences for years that he relies on this very deep research and that he has sources in high places. And, you know, when he's deposed, when he's actually under the microscope, he's like, well, I got it off YouTube and 4chan. You know, my staff sees a bunch of stuff. So it's an interesting look at the the way he's been a pipeline where they just kind of see something and just funnel it. He's been the Fox News of conspiracy theories, right? But yeah, Alex Jones this year has had to issue like two retractions, which he's never done before. And now, you know, he's having to answer for his especially gross and damaging comments in court. And I think that's a good thing. Um, Tell me about QAnon. What is that? (laughs) So QAnon started out as a conspiracy theory or as an idea that there is a secret high level member of the Trump administration who is leaving clues on 4chan about this mass indictment and arrest of President Trump's opponents that's like imminent. 
Um, and so Q, this person calling themselves Q, was leaving what Q called crumbs on 4chan. And they're all like completely like unreadably weird, you know, where you're just like literally what does that mean? They're essentially riddles. And so QAnon grew into this movement among especially like it seems like older white folks who are maybe not like digital natives, but it's essentially at its core a conspiracy theory that President Trump is secretly doing a really good job and that his opponents are all going to go to jail and we just have to like wait. But now it's sort of shifting and turning into this like attempt to explain everything. Like it's gotten so sprawling and chaotic. It's like really interesting to watch. Yeah, I think a lot of this language is similar to feelings that people talk about when they're gaming in online communities where you gather together with other people who are in isolated rooms playing a game to join a quest or to solve a problem, um, mm -hmm. except that in this case, it's real life. And the problem is that 30% of elected officials are pedophiles. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about this, too, with like uh, true crime reddits, you know, this group of amateur sleuths trying to get together to solve a murder or something and the ways that it can actually have incredibly like negative and corrosive effects on like the family members, you know, the surviving family members of a murder victim on an actual investigation. It, it feels so tantalizing and exciting for so many people that I think they forget that there are real people involved. So you're a New Yorker. I'm wondering if you have any favorite local conspiracy theories. We were talking a little bit about the Bay Ridge Bing, uh, which out in Bay Ridge, there was this like recurrent bing sound that people like, well, it's obviously aliens. Oh, my God. Um, and it ended up being some piece of like offshore heavy machinery that was like tapping the seafloor. I repeatedly. love that. <laughs> Do you have any other ones that we should know about as New Yorkers? Um, oh, what was I just thinking about? Well, there's obviously the weird like Montauk monster that washed up on the seashore a couple years ago and nobody knew what it was and it was obviously a monster. And I think now Zardulu has claimed credit for it and said that it was one of her creations. She's sort of a, she calls herself a myth maker and she stages these weird events and strange animals around town. So one of our producers on the show, Isabel, is really into low stakes conspiracy theories. Um, one that she's trying to propagate is that birds aren't real. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any like pro tips for her, like if she really wants to give this legs that birds aren't real, mm -hmm. how would she go about doing that? I was actually just talking to the guy who created that conspiracy theory. Oh, tell me about that. He was, I think, a student at University of Arkansas and is no longer and just had this idea that how hard could it be? Right. To create a conspiracy theory. And so he um, actually went viral because he and his friends decided to take their birds aren't real signs to the women's march. And we're photographed there. So, yeah, I guess um, I guess if you want to propagate a conspiracy theory, and I don't think you should, but if you <laughs> want to, probably helps to be interesting and colorful looking and to be photographed in a public place where people can share it on social media. And if possible, you want somebody like Alex Jones to pick it up. That's like what we've seen is that like having the accelerant of celebrities. So if not Alex Jones, then maybe the president, you know, he'll tweet anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Anna. Really love the book. Thanks. And uh, tell us a little bit about when it's going to be out and where people can buy it. Um, the book is out on April 16th and you can buy it. I think all the places you buy books. That makes sense. Yeah. It is a book. So. That is my hope. Yeah. <laughs> we will, we will see about that, but That's that is the theory. Great. And it's called Republic of Lies. It's by Anna Merlin. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
That's the show for today. And if you liked what you heard, please review 112BK on iTunes and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 